passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Today is a, a day where we remember and celebrate the victory that Jesus won for us uh, in his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. And uh, even in the midst of this really, really uh, weird season where everything has just been upended, we're just reminded uh, of God's victory. Uh, I, I want to assure you that, that COVID-19 uh, is not going to, to last forever that it will one day be relegated to the history books and, and its impact will diminish. And yet today we are talking about something that took place 2,000 years ago and its significance, its, its importance will never wane. It will never disappear. And uh, it will only get more important or more significant as we also experience our own resurrection in the new creation. And this Easter, what I want us to do is I want us to just consider that. I want us, as this, this season looks, looks different than anything else we have experienced, I, I just want us to, to base our hope on that truth, that the impact of COVID-19, it will fade, and yet the power, the work of the cross, it will endure forever. And that is a reason for us to celebrate, even if for a season we have to do it scattered and in our homes. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at the gospel of Mark. Mark's ending uh, to his gospel. It's a, it's a gospel we've spent quite a bit of time in over the last couple years uh, as we've been going through this book. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And as we consider Mark's account of the resurrection, I want us to do it really in three steps. First, I want us to recap what has taken place to this point, uh, look at the record of Mark's resurrection, uh, Mark's record of the resurrection, and then finally, I just want to consider the relevance of this passage for us today. So Mark 16, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll be this morning. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking back, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice that even though we are scattered today, we, uh, we are united together in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And God, we ask that as we submit ourselves to your word this morning, that you would grant us peace beyond our circumstances, that you would give us an unshakable confidence in the victory of Christ at the cross. God, help us to be a people whose entire lives are shaped not by the world, but instead by the empty tomb. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, for us to truly understand Mark's account of the resurrection and everything that he tells us there, we first have to understand not just the, the whole of Mark, but also how Mark as a whole fits into the entire Bible. And so let's start first with a recap up to this point. I think it was, it was Max Lucado who said something like this, the road to Calvary began with the crunch of the apple was still echoing in the garden. And that's true. The, the climax that we see at the first Easter thousands of years ago, that is the climax of a story that began before time itself. And we live in a broken world, but the world was not always that way. In the beginning, God created everything good. He created humanity with a special purpose, a special role in his creation. He created men and women to dwell alongside him, to live with him, as well as to reign alongside him as his sub-governors. God was the one who was in charge, but humanity was given privilege and honor before or above anything else in all of creation. And can you just imagine how incredible that gift was, that God's gift to men and to women originally at the beginning of time in the garden was to live with him forever and to rule alongside him forever. And yet it was also in the garden that we saw a crisis A crisis where God's people, humanity, decided that they didn't want to just rule alongside God or underneath God. They said, no, we want to actually rule instead of God. And in this this stunning act of defiance, humanity leads all of creation in a rebellion against a good and gracious creator king. And because of that, because of sin, creation entered into a crisis. And we certainly see the effects of that crisis today, don't we? COVID-19, our current pandemic, is just another and a long list of examples of how this crisis, this crisis in creation, is working its way out of this creation that's crying out for deliverance from the brokenness that holds it captive. But it's not just COVID-19 that explains or expresses the brokenness of God's creation. We see it when our loved ones are diagnosed with cancer at too young of an age. We see it when natural, natural disasters leads to the, the displacement with thousands of people losing their homes. We see it in relational brokenness between two different people. We see it in systemic corruption that leads to more death and, and more suffering from other people. In a thousand different ways, we see the brokenness of God's once good creation. We live in a creation that is filled with pain and suffering and death. And one that has been groaning for God to come and redeem it, to save it from the suffering that it is experiencing far longer than any of us can remember. And yet, in all of these crises, which are very real, and we are experiencing one right now, the Bible actually tells us that there is another, there's a deeper crisis that resulted from the actions in the garden. And that is the breaking of relationship between God and humanity. Because humanity chose that life would be better without God, God removed them from his presence. And even in that judgment, God gave them a promise. Even though we were separated from God, that we were no longer able to live with him, that we were no longer chosen to rule alongside him, he said one day, I will send a son, a chosen one, who will save my creation and who will make all things right. 
where Adam and Eve chose rebellion against God, the chosen one will instead choose obedience to God. And that will lead to a new creation. Where does this rebellion come from? This rebellion against God that we see not only in Adam and in Eve, but also in our own hearts. Well, I think it comes from doubting the word of God and the goodness of God. In fact, that's what the serpent does in Genesis chapter 3. He calls doubts or he casts doubt upon the word of God. He says, did God really say? And by doubting or causing Adam and Eve to doubt the word of God, he also is causing them to doubt the goodness of God. Is God holding out on you? Is God really a God who is worth trusting with your life? And in a sense, that's the root of every temptation that we experience. Every time that we turn our backs away from God, it is ultimately or fundamentally caused by this belief that God isn't good or that God isn't worth trusting in. And so if you look at your own life, when you are tempted to sacrifice your morals in the workplace for expediency or to avoid some ribbing from your coworkers, what's the root of that temptation? The root of that temptation, if you peel back the layers, is this unbelief that God is good, that God is worth trusting in, that, that God's goodness isn't ultimately as, as good as expediency in my life, that, that God's worth is, is not ultimately as valuable as me avoiding the, the discomfort of people making fun of me in the workplace. Or if you are, are single and you so desperately want to, to be in a relationship with someone that you are willing to compromise, what is the root of that temptation? Well, the root of that temptation, if you peel back the layers again, as you arrive at an unbelief in God's goodness, that God's plan, ultimately, it's not good enough for me. For those of you who have kids and you are tempted to lash out at them when they disobey you, what is the root of that temptation? Well, if you begin to peel back the layers in those moments of frustration, the anger, it doesn't come from them not listening to the way that God has set up his creation where, where children are supposed to listen to parents, but oftentimes it comes from this place where we begin to realize that, that my kingdom, my importance, my sovereignty over my life, it's, it's actually not as, as important or not as big as I realize and people won't listen to me. And as we begin to peel back the layers, we see an unbelief in God and his goodness that he is the one in charge, even when life is hard. You see, Adam and Eve, they rejected the goodness of God in the garden. All of us have fallen, followed in their footsteps. No wonder the, the biggest crisis in creation is, is not anything that we experience beyond our broken relationship with God. It's because if we don't have someone who is worthy, someone who has followed God perfectly, then there is no one who is able to take care of that crisis and no one who is able to address the rest of the crises that are facing us as humanity. The reality is that we might find a, a vaccine to COVID-19 in a year or 18 months and it will disappear. But pandemics, plagues, famines, will never disappear. We might have the technology to prevent us from feeling isolated from other people, but loneliness will never disappear. We might find a cure for cancer, and yet death will remain inescapable. The brokenness of creation, all of the crises that we see around us, cannot be addressed 
until the crisis of our relationship, of, of humanity's relationship with God is first taken care of. And in a sense, that's what the entire Bible is about. It is a story of asking the question, who is worthy? God promises Eve a son who will make all things right. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. And the rest of the Bible asks this question, who is the one who will deliver us from the curse of sin? And so as we follow Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, we start to encounter different people in Genesis 4, 5, 6. And as we begin to look at these, God has given Adam this special place in his, in his kingdom, in his creation, where he is called God's son. And as God's son, he is able to rule over everything, and yet he immediately fails when he is tempted. And then we, we go a couple chapters later in Genesis, and we get to Noah. And Noah is so similar to Adam. He's, he's referred to as, as the, the chosen one. He's, he's like Adam in his identity. He's like Adam in his calling. And we get to this point where we're like, is, is Noah the one who is going to save creation from its brokenness? And we quickly see that the answer is no. He fails as well. And so does Abraham, so does Isaac, so does Jacob, so do all of Jacob's sons. We come centuries later to the rest of the Old Testament. We begin to see that God calls the nation of Israel and he actually refers to them as his son. And we begin to wonder, well, is this, is this it? Is this corporate nation, are they the ones who will remain perfectly faithful and are they the ones that God will use to redeem or restore all of creation? And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that that is a resounding no. They fail. They aren't obedient to God. They want to go their own way. And then we get to the stories of the kings and, and David fails and Solomon fails and all of the kings who come after them. They fail, fail, fail. None of them is obedient. None of them is worthy. And we see that in our own lives too, don't we? None of us is perfectly obedient. None of us is worthy to stop the crisis of creation. And then we get to Jesus. We open up to Jesus in the New Testament. Here we have another king. Someone who is like David, like Solomon, like Adam. We have another chosen one, just like Israel, just like Abraham, just like Noah, just like Isaac and Jacob, and, and everyone who has come before him, who has borne this mantle of the chosen one or the called one that God is going to use for his kingdom, every single one of them has failed. We come to Mark, and the question is, will Jesus fail? That's ultimately what the gospel of Mark is about in the broader context of the whole Bible. Is Jesus worthy? Is Jesus the chosen one? And if he is, what does that mean for us? This is the lifelong temptation that Jesus faces in the gospel of Mark. The temptation to not be obedient to his father's plan, to, to not be obedient to, to God's calling for him, to forsake his father's will, even though his will will bring redemption to all of creation. Because his father's will is unbelievably costly. 
That's the heart of Jesus' temptation in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Notice that Mark, unlike the other gospel writers, he doesn't mention that the temptation of Jesus ceases after 40 days, and I think that that's intentional. It's because for Mark, he sees that all of Jesus' life is this struggle to be obedient to his Father, that Jesus is continually being scrutinized, that Jesus is continually being tested. It's not just for 40 days in the wilderness, but all of Jesus' life, he has to remain faithful. And when we look at the, the accounts of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus confront evil, not just once, not just for 40 days in the wilderness, but time and time and time again in his life, in all of the exorcisms, in all of the healings, in all of the ministering to those who are around him, Jesus is continually in a battle against the, the evil one. And in it all, he shows that he is perfectly obedient to his Father. This is particularly clear when we look at other parts of, of Mark's gospel, not just the beginning of Mark's gospel, but if we look at Mark chapter 8, kind of the high point of Mark's gospel, when we see that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the chosen one, that Jesus is the one who is going to save God's creation, that he's going to end all of the crises that we experience, all the pain, all the loss, all of the suffering that we have in our lives. And Peter confesses that, and then we get to this passage immediately following. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said to this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of God. Of man. Why is it that, that Jesus calls Peter Satan here? Surely it's because it's the exact same thing that, that Satan was tempting him with in the wilderness. Jesus, as, as Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the chosen one, Jesus says, I, that's exactly right, and that's what, this is what that means. It means that I'm going to the cross. It means that I will suffer, that I will carry the sins of man, but I won't stay dead. And when Peter hears that, he says, no, no, Jesus, that can't be. You're not going to die. Don't, don't talk like that, Jesus. And Jesus has heard that exact same temptation in his life, the, most, the greatest temptation, the, the thing that Jesus wrestled with his entire life is this temptation to forgo the cross, to avoid the cross, the pain of the crucifixion, not only the physical, but the emotional and the spiritual pain that he will experience when he carries the sins of the world on his shoulders. And when Peter says that to him, he rebukes him because he's heard that exact same thing before from the enemy of our souls. Surely every day of Jesus' life was a temptation to ignore the cross, to find a different way to be God's king, to be God's chosen one. All of his life was a battle for obedience, to actually be faithful to his father. And through it all, Jesus proves himself to be obedient. We see this again in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in the garden right before his arrest and his crucifixion and his death. 
And as he's in the garden, we're seeing Jesus just hours away from that moment where, where the suffering will, will finally be here. And, and in this moment, Jesus is facing the temptation to avoid the cross. And yet, rather than running away from God, he instead brings it to God and, and pleads with God and says, Jesus, or he says, Father, please, if there is, is another way, please let it be so. Consider Mark chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus is faced with this temptation to avoid God's plan. And what does he do? He brings it to his Father. Rather than running from it, he brings it to God and says, If there is any other way for this to be done, for me to remain faithful to you, please, Father, let it be so. But not my will, but yours. He remains obedient to his Father. All these temptations that Jesus faces, they crescendo at the cross. At the cross, we see that it's not, Jesus, or it's not Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. It's actually the crowds who are mocking him, who are tempting him to abandon the cross. Notice what the crowds say in Mark 15. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Here in this passage, we see that though they don't actually believe what they are saying, they claim to say, if, if you were to save yourself, we will actually believe who you are, who you claim to be. But you have to get down off of the cross. The crowds may not recognize it, but surely Jesus hears this demonic hiss in his ear saying, the cross is useless. God's plan has, has an error in it. The only way to prove to these people that you are the chosen one, that you are the one who has come to save them, is to actually get down off of the cross. But Jesus remains faithful, even when he is tempted by his disciples, even when he is tempted by the cry of the crowds in the height of his agony on the cross Jesus remains steadfast and obedient and faithful to his Father's plan. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that his obedience is actually on full display 
at the cross. Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus' temptation didn't end after 40 days. It continued throughout his entire life. His entire life was his battle for obedience for or to his father, and he proves himself perfectly and utterly faithful on the cross. And because of that, in some unfathomable, mysterious way, the cross is not this moment where sin and death are victorious, even though that's what it looks like. It looks like if, if God's chosen one, if, if the only worthy one succumbs to death on the cross, then who else can possibly save themselves? In this moment where it looks like sin and death is victorious, we actually see that instead they forever lose their sting if you trust in Jesus as your Savior. The kingdom of the King well, it comes through the cross, the crisis of creation, the things that we experience now. All of them have an expiration date because of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, we, we know that now. It's, it's pretty obvious to us for what we have in the Bible. That's why we gather today on Sunday. And not just on Easter Sunday, but really every Sunday, we gather together because of that truth, to remind ourselves, to proclaim that truth, and to worship God for what he has done for us. And yet, on that first Easter Sunday, that was far from the case. We may know it now, but it wasn't at all clear to them. And yes, Jesus's followers, including the women that we see here in Mark chapter 16, perhaps they should have known better. Jesus three times predicts his own death and his resurrection and, and, and says that death will not hold sway over him. And yet, I'm going to be honest, if I were in that situation, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of resurrections in my own lifetime. And so I would have responded probably with the exact same unbelief as these women. The record of, of Mark chapter 16 actually starts on Saturday night. The Sabbath runs from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And so after the, the sun as set, it tells us in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, that they went and bought spices after the Sabbath. Jesus had died on Friday, and he was quickly buried in a tomb before the Sabbath. And because of this quick death, because of his quick and sudden burial, his body was not shown the proper respect that his followers desired. And surprisingly, it's not his disciples, is it? It's not his disciples who are watching and observing and see where Jesus is laid in a tomb. No, it's these three women, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he, came, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I love this passage in the context there of, of verse 40. It says that they are watching from a distance. 
What are they watching at a distance? They're watching the cross at a distance. It's this beautiful picture because while the disciples are nowhere to be found, these, these women who love Jesus observed it all. And even though the disciples have run, even though they have scattered these women, even though they're from a distance, they want to honor Jesus. They're, they're unwilling to let Jesus' body be buried without honoring it properly. And so on late Saturday night, they go out, they buy some spices for their dear friend in order to honor him. And then early on Sunday morning, when the sun is rising, probably around 6 to 6.30 in the morning, they begin to head to the tomb. Now, I know that for many people, uh, the idea of a resurrection is far-fetched. The end of Matthew's gospel actually tells us that the Jewish people said that this was a hoax, that, that his disciples were, uh, had actually stolen his body and were going around telling people that he was alive. And yet, Mark's gospel, the story that he tells, is not just in answer to these objections, hey, the, the, the resurrection seems far-fetched, but it also presents what I think is some compelling evidence for why this actually happened. That this record is actually reality of the resurrection. Consider just a couple things. First, who are the people that are at the tomb? That's three women. Three women in ancient times, the, the testimony of women was suspect at best. If you were to create a hoax, if you wanted to make it believable, the, the people that you would have be witnesses would not at all be women. The words of one scholar are helpful for us. I think it's James Edward. He says this, It attests to the truthfulness of the resurrection narrative. For had early Christians fabricated the resurrection story, the testimony of women was no way to go about it. Some two centuries after the Gospels were written, the pagan Celsus could still mock Origen on, quote, the gossip of women about the empty tomb, end quote. The witness of Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Salome, and especially Mary Magdalene, whose names uh, head the resurrection witness in all four Gospels, endows the resurrection narratives with the highest degree of probability. Unless women were actually present at the tomb, the early church would scarcely have placed them there since Judaism did not accept the testimony of women. The testimony of women is, however, entirely in character with the divine economy. Those whose testimony is discounted in human society are the first to be included in the divine society. I love that. That God uses those who are looked down upon to be the first ones to hear the good news of the gospel. It's not just that, though. The narrative reads like these events are being recorded by someone who has actually experienced them or being written down from a conversation with them. Mark uses the names of the women. Mark rarely uses actual names in his gospel. And so as he records them, it's almost like he's saying, hey, if you don't believe me, go ahead and hear their names. Go ahead and ask them. They are the ones who can answer your questions. Hunt them down if you would like. Notice he also records the anxieties of the women. They're on their way to the tomb, and he tells us what they're, they're talking about, the questions that they have, the struggles that they have. They're saying, who's, who's going to move the stone for us, for us to be able to do this for Jesus, to honor his body? And, and don't you think that's just another not-so-subtle statement that every one of Jesus' disciples has abandoned him? The stone is massive, it is large, and these women are not able to do it on their own. And then they get to the tomb. 
And once they get to the tomb, they, they're understandably terrified about this dark tomb. The stone is rolled away, and they don't see Jesus' body. They begin to probably think that some grave robbers got to it, but, it, but it's confusing because Jesus' clothes are still there. And then they find this young man, which is a use of, use of, uh, euphemism for an angel. He's just sitting in the tomb. Of course they're terrified. I would be terrified too if I walk into a tomb and I'm expecting a dead body and instead I find an angel. But in response to the angel's words, do not fear, how do they respond? Well, they respond in terror. And the angel gives them a command and says, I want you to go and tell the disciples. I want you to go tell Peter about this good news. What do they do? They say nothing. They remain silent because they're terrified. See, this, this reads like something that actually happened to warts and everything. And isn't that exactly the type of person that God uses? In spite of faults, in spite of failures, in spite of being terrified of what has just taken place, about what it means to actually follow him, in spite of disobedience to this command to go and tell others the good news of the gospel. That's exactly the type of person that God uses in his kingdom, isn't it? And, and I just want to finish with that as we consider the relevance of this passage for today. This passage it, it, it ends with this startling note of failure, doesn't it? It ends with fear. Consider, Jesus has told his disciples repeatedly, the crucifixion is coming, but I will not stay dead. I will rise again, and no one believes him. All of Jesus' closest friends, the 12 disciples, have completely abandoned him. They are nowhere to be seen on the resurrection Sunday. They're nowhere to be seen on the crucifixion or at the crucifixion in Jesus' final hours. And they're, they're unwilling to honor his body in death. And the women who, who come, fo- come forward and come to Jesus' tomb, they are told by this angel, do not fear. And what do they do? They run in terror. They are told to go and tell this good news and instead they go and hide and say nothing. It is so easy for us to cower in fear. Especially in this season uh, where we're consumed by our present circumstances. We're, we're consumed by a, an uncertain, unknown future. It is so easy for us to just be overwhelmed by that fear instead of running to Jesus. And instead we just run away from him. We run away from his word. It is so easy for us to have the best of intentions and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And then we're faced with this moment where obedience to Jesus is costly, either in our interactions with others at work or in his calling for us in our time or in our use of our finances. And in fear, we run the other direction. It is so easy for us to say, Jesus, you are my everything, and for us to actually believe that. But then, when we have the opportunity to share the gospel with a family member or a friend or an acquaintance who thinks the gospel is just a load of rubbish, Even when we say, Jesus, you are my everything, we find ourselves in this place where we are just swallowing our words because of terror. 
It is so easy for us to fall into sin and when we finally come back to our senses for us to be afraid of running to God in repentance because we don't want other people to see the wrong things that we have done. It is so easy for us to have in our heads this idea or this knowledge that, that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of everything, including COVID-19, including job loss, including loneliness, including loss of purposes, including this feeling of, of helplessness and, and these depressing circumstances. But in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our loneliness, we give in to fear and despair. It is so easy to be afraid. And I look at this account. And I look at these women. And I see Jordan. I see Jordan who has failed Jesus repeatedly who has cowered in fear constantly. Listen, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've failed him. I can't tell you how many times I've cowered in fear and I've said nothing in fear and I would imagine that many of you know exactly what it means to flee in trembling and terror just like these women did in Mark 16. And the question that this passage forces us to wrestle with, to ask of ourselves, is that when we are faced with fear, whatever its source, it can be the economy, it can be our health, it can be our future, it can be your family member's health, it can be the rejection of others when we are trying or called to share the gospel, it can be the pain of obedience, it can be the pain of repentance, a thousand different things, wherever that fear comes from. How will you respond? See, here's the message of Mark's gospel. It's just lying underneath the surface. If you've been with us as we've been going through the gospel of Mark, you, you may remember that Mark doesn't give anything to us explicitly. He makes us search for it. He makes us hunt for it. And that's what we're doing here. If you're willing to dig for the message of this passage, it's simply this. When we are faced with fear, we can find freedom in the resurrection. When we are faced with fear, we can find freedom in the resurrection. And it's the, in the resurrection, in the moment where Jesus proves himself to be the victorious one, the moment where your debt of sin is erased forever, this moment where God declares there is now no... Therefore, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's this moment when we are adopted into the family of God forever. It's this moment where death is defeated forever, where we are given the power to overcome through the Spirit, to overcome our fear. You see, when, when we take Mark as a whole into consideration, I think we're given the key to overcoming our fear, no matter what their cause is. It's not to just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps or to, to resolve, to, to not be afraid. Instead, it's to gaze upon the cross, 
to gaze upon the one who was perfectly obedient to his father. Jesus proved himself to be obedient in a way that you never will and I never will. And we set out to earn our approval from God by living a life of, of, of obedience to him. If we try to do that to earn God's favor, we will fail miserably and we will fail eternally. But to cling to the cross and the empty tomb of the one who did conquer, of the only son who was perfectly obedient to his father, perfectly faithful, the one who has overcome, that is where we conquer every, every fear. It's not to look at Jesus as an example, but instead as our conquering king, the one who stepped in and saved us from ourselves and from the bondage of the enemy. The cross grants us victory over fear. Once and for all, but also each and every day. We're granted that victory and that freedom, not because of our obedience, but because the obedience of Jesus. He was the perfectly faithful one where we have failed, where Abraham failed, where Isaac failed, where King David failed, where Adam failed, where Solomon failed, where Noah failed, where everyone in all of creation has failed. Jesus did not. And in this season of such uncertainty and fear and anxiety, remember that freedom from fear is found in the resurrection. It's found in Jesus' victory for you if you are found in him. And that's something that nothing can ever take from you. It's at the cross where we find our victory over sin. And at the empty tomb, we find our freedom from fear. And if you are filled with fear today, wherever it comes from, hear these words of hope and assurance from Mark chapter 16. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was once crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that you have risen. We thank you for making a way for us. To be with you forever. And we thank you that we can have confidence in you because of what you have done for us, not because of anything that we do. That no matter what we face, the crises of creation today, we can rest confidently in our King who has conquered the grave. God, help us to be a people today and always who do not succumb to fear wherever it comes from. Fear from our circumstances, fear from the future, fear from uh, the desire to please men and women around us. 
Help us to conquer our fear and devote ourselves to a good, faithful, loving, conquering King and Savior. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.